The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 54 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist. The Pobscast is a collection of connectfulness conversations where we join together with therapists and anyone interested in deep restorative transformation. We examine how to create ripples of change within ourselves and with the world around us. Sex is a difficult topic for most of us to discuss. What we like, what we don't like, where the edges of our boundaries are, what is normal and what isn't, what our children need to know and when. And yet, it's such an all-encompassing thing in what it means to be human. It has roots and ties in nearly every facet of our existence. Ultimately, what we all secretly want to know is, am I normal? Our fears, discomfort, and shame around sex aren't entirely our faults. Had we been raised receiving different messages around sex, we'd be having very different conversations today than we are now. And yet, here we are, trying our best to navigate a landscape rife with the ripples of Me Too testimonials, rape culture, sexual harassment scandals, consent, and victim blaming. It's no wonder that we struggle to know how to educate our children about sex or quietly tolerate discontentment and shame in our own bedrooms. This week, my guest Megan Tory Payne and I try to make sense of how we got here and how we can shift this conversation to move forward. Megan is a licensed clinical social worker, relationship therapist, and a certified sex therapist with ASTEC, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. She loves to talk about talking to kids about sex, teens, and porn, and why sex matters for women with anyone who's interested in learning more in pretty much any context. She also helps generalist therapists become more comfortable talking about sex with their clients and offers sexuality education to the community through both small group classes and through her volunteer work with Planned Parenthood Pasadena and San Gabriel Valley. We're taking you on a journey with us, and we're wondering if perhaps all of this comes down to a willingness to have uncomfortable conversations and be okay in the gray. Let's dive in. Welcome, Megan. I am so excited to talk to you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I'm really glad that you took me up on the offer to join in. We have um, met each other online, and you have really impressed upon me with just your knowledge base around sex and sexuality. And you have been a shining light in the online therapist community to help teach other therapists about sex and relationships. And so I just wanted to bring you on to continue that conversation. Excellent. I love that. Yeah. You know, when, before we got started today, you were talking to me about a few different intersecting places of your interest. And all of them really have to do with kind of the scarcity of sex ed that we have in our culture and society today. What do you think, like what's showing up for you as like the biggest ripple or the biggest ripples <laughs> of, of that scarcity of education? Well, I think it's how it just permeates our entire culture. So I think we see it in, for instance, the Harvey Weinstein, all of the sexual harassment yeah. discussions that have been going on the last few weeks. You know, there's people who aren't comfortable talking about it, who aren't comfortable standing up against it, whether they've been victimized or whether they've just witnessed it, much less the perpetrators who thought that this was appropriate or at least something they could get away with. Um, you know, from there to the discussions around, related discussions around rape culture or um, and all of that, the Me Too stuff that we're seeing coming out. Exactly, how pervasive it is. Yeah. And then even, you know, about couples who don't know how to talk to each other 
mm-hmm. about what they want sexually, about oh, so much of that, the things that they're <laughs> interested in or the things they're not interested in, you know, mm-hmm. they, people just don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. And, and I find this other piece too, I'm sure that you see this in your office as well, but this thing where like when couples come into the office, they're expecting that because they love each other, the sex should be good. And if the sex isn't good, then maybe their relationship isn't worth it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the areas um, that I think, I'm going to put this in quotes, regular sex or regular couples therapy um, falls down is there's this idea that if we can strengthen the couple and we can strengthen the communication and the um, connection, that sex will just naturally flow. And it doesn't. And it doesn't because sometimes there's been such a breakdown that then you start pulling in all of these feelings of anxiety and fear and inadequacy and insecurity that then becomes its own separate hurdle. And I find, I don't know about you, but I find with so many of the couples and the individuals that I work with that what's really coming into the room is some form of like sexual trauma or mislearning that they have to work through. Mm-hmm. in order to even get to the place where they can actually meet their partner. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I really look at one of the first things I do with couples around sex is just basic education. Mm-hmm. It's just about, hey, you know what? You're talking about how you don't orgasm. Well, you know what? To be honest, that's kind of normal. Or, you know, it's normal for 30% of women to need, require clitoral stimulation in order to orgasm. So isn't this the main conversation that you have so much of the time? Like, uh, am I normal? Yeah. Yeah. That's really the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole work I do is yes, you are normal. (laughs) You are normal and it is okay. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is really okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, so where do you, where do you dive in? Where do you begin? And what do you think? Our listeners need to hear, keeping in mind that our listeners are both other therapists and people who are seeking therapy. Well, I think the, the first place to start is, yes, you are normal. That when it comes to sex and sexuality, there really is no normal which then means we are all normal. <laughs> you know, we can't compare ourselves to anybody else, both in what we're interested in, because there's a whole wide continuum there, to even how our bodies work. Because as much as our, we all have the same parts, they don't all work the same way. And we don't respond to the same things in the same way. Right. So the very first message is, yes, you are normal, But if you want things to work in a way that feels better for you, how do we get there? Tell me about what are those things that you're looking for and how can we work together to find that? And maybe it's education, maybe it's resolving some of that trauma, maybe it's about increased communication, maybe it's about working around, working with issues of anxiety what do we need? And that varies from person to person and couple to couple. Yeah, I, I love that approach. And I also love how individualized this is because it, it, there's not a formula for this. Exactly. There's really exactly. not. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to teaching children about sex or having the talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I laugh when I say the talk because mm-hmm. I know in, in my family, I have two little ones and in my family, we've been having that talk forever. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this, they're, they're under 10. Okay. <laughs> so I okay. really hope they're, they're not. They're little age. ones still. They're little. They're little. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, with my, with my two little ones, we've been having this talk for forever uh-huh. and it shows up in many ways from those early conversations about this is your nose, yes. <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. This is your belly button and this is your clitoris to conversations around how babies are made and having those conversations, but also including in there that there's room for pleasure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That having a conversation about sex and how babies are made 
I believe also needs to include components of what feels good because they already know that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's a really easy message to give, um, you know, because kids touch themselves. They touch their vulvas, they touch their penises because it feels good. And they're and doing it from like, I mean, you're changing their diapers and they're doing it. It's exactly. not like you have to wait to have this conversation. No, exactly. And you can just say, you know, and, and when they're babies, you can say, yeah, doesn't that feel good when they're little? As they get older and they start touching themselves in the living room or in the grocery store, then you can even incorporate it into... Um, I call it the time and place conversation, which is there's a time and place for everything. The grocery store is perhaps not the time to touch yourself. And I know that that feels good, but that's really something that we do when we're at home, when we're in the privacy of our bedrooms or bathrooms. And you I know? love that you're, you're having that conversation in that way, because what it's really illustrating is that this isn't something that we need to create shame around. Exactly. Exactly. And that shame is really the root of that question that people come with, am I normal? It's feeling ashamed that whatever they're doing, whatever they're interested in, whatever gives them pleasure is something that is bad or shameful. It's something that they have to hide. It's something exactly. that can't exist out in the open that people can't know about. Exactly. And that's something that starts when we're so little. Mm -hmm. That communication starts when we're babies. It starts so young. Yeah. And then the other side of this conversation that I think is also important that I'm aware of with my little ones is around consent. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that even starts with like, you know, having like a little family pillow fight or something like that. And when somebody says stop mm -hmm. paying attention. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Or, or tickling is also another oh, tickling really is a big one. one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. And, or, and even, when it's outside the family, you know, that you never touch anybody without their consent. You don't hug your friend. You ask first, can I give you a hug? Can I touch your hand? Can, you know, and you should respect the same, expect them to have the same boundaries with you that they ask before somebody touches you. And if somebody ever says, no, I don't want to be touched in that way, then you stop. Right. Immediately. And I think these are, these are hard lessons to learn as children, especially children who have big impulses and are all over the place. And, mm -hmm. But it's also something for parents to be mindful of and teachers to be mindful of, mm -hmm. that um, consent is definitely something we need to work on building into our vocabulary more right. with the little ones and, and the bigger ones that we work with. Right. And the beauty is that it's a conversation that can start so young. It can start in preschool, and it doesn't even have to be about sexual consent or even, you know, private places or, you know, body parts and other people, you know, it can just be about, you know, even with your friends. And then that way, by the time it starts to become about sexual behaviors, it's already ingrained. Well, of course, if I'm going to ask my friend if I can give them a hug, then I'm certainly going to ask them if I can do something else to them. That and, makes and, so much sense. <laughs> and, so, and so you start easy where you're, where you're instilling the value non-sexually. And then as they grow into it, then it becomes a part of the sexual conversation. All right. So I love this. What we've just covered in like just a few minutes <laughs> is like this whole gamut of what's normal, where does shame come from, what feels good, what's pleasurable, like kind of that exploration place yes. and into consent. We've kind yes. of, we've touched on all of that. So, okay, parents, teachers, whomever you are, you have this like basic language or framework now, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Now imagine that we all had that because we didn't. So imagine <laughs> that every single one of us had that, we'd be having really different conversations around sex and sexuality. Oh, completely. completely. But we're not because right. that isn't the way that we were raised. Right. Exactly. So what do we need? I think the very first thing is a willingness to try. Try what? To try to have the uncomfortable conversations. Mm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just pausing there uh -huh. because it's, it's the willingness, but not just a willingness and not just a willingness to try, but a willingness to go to the uncomfortable places. Exactly. Okay. 
Exactly. And, and that's, again, something that we do with our clients as therapists, whether it's individual or couples, we say, let's have that uncomfortable conversation. And often we're the first person who's ever done that for people. And yeah, who's helped guide so them many, through it. So many conversations, I'm sure this is you too, where you're the first person I've ever told this to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, especially in the realm of sex and sex therapy, that's even more so. I have clients regularly who say, there is nobody else in my life that I talk to about this. Yeah, especially. I get a lot of that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's these uncomfortable conversations. And a lot of people will say, well, but how do I get comfortable? And I say, well, you're not going to be comfortable. Even as a sex therapist, being in the sexuality field, I'm not always comfortable having these conversations. And certainly when it's in my personal life, even less so. <laughs> you know, there are moments where my kid asks a question and I'm stuck going, okay, this is happening. <laughs> and, and what I think that, okay, this is happening moment illustrates so well is that there's a pause. Right, exactly. Because that, that is the first place I think we all need to go when we get uncomfortable. It's just like, okay, take a breath and pause there. Just notice the discomfort. Exactly. A lot of my listeners may even be tired of hearing me say this, but one thing that I talk about a lot is how discomfort, pain, fear, those uncomfortable places, they're all information. And I think that's the moment where we need to remind ourselves it's okay to be uncomfortable. I don't need to have all the answers and it's okay to give mixed messages. Yes. And I think those are the three things that whether we're talking about parents or partners or in the therapy room, anything, those are the three things that we don't need to know everything because there's a lot of things in the world, but you can always say, you know what, I need to come back to that. Or can I do research? Or if it's with your child, hey, you know what, why don't we research that together? Which then I like, because then you can spin that into a little internet literacy lesson about, you know, how do we search for sexual information online without getting flooded with pornography? Um, Which is a big deal these days. Exactly. You know, and it's, you know, and it's important. And you can say like, hey, you know, what would happen if you did a search that just said this one word? So for instance, there was one day my son wanted to look at the, um, a diagram of the anatomy of a penis. And I said, well, why don't we look for that on the internet? And, and so we together. kind of, like, this we looked together. together. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit beforehand about what search words we should use. Um, and I said, what do you think you would get if you just wrote in penis? And he was able to sort of say, probably a lot of pictures. And I said, exactly. So let's get a little bit more specific. <laughs> and then we found if we searched diagram of penis, we got a lot of really good hits. And then I was able to say, these are the websites that I would trust that would give me good information about what I'm looking for. Mm. So it really melded nicely into this whole other separate but related conversation. And then we were able to refocus on, okay, so here's an illustration, a diagram that's really good. And let's look at it and talk about what are the parts, what's happening here. Right. So not knowing is okay. Not knowing is, it has to be okay because that's, that's where we get our quest for more information. Right, exactly. But I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I don't know, then what am I going to say? Right. Or and and we don't know that? where to look. I mean, that's right. another thing is that mm -hmm. in this age of total connectivity, mm -hmm. it's so much harder sometimes to distill down to what are good sources of information. Right. right. right? And when you put in a word like anatomy of a penis, who knows what you're going to get? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're going to have to weed through an awful lot of things you may not want to see. Mm-hmm. It was a little yeah. easier back in the day when we had a bookshelf of encyclopedias. Right, exactly. <laughs> Although the problem with the encyclopedias, though, is they often didn't have enough information. Right. So you might not have been able to find the anatomy of a penis in the encyclopedia because it wasn't appropriate. Hmm. And some editor, <laughs> exactly, some editor decided, well, if these are going to go in elementary school libraries, then we need to make them family friendly. Family friendly, in quotes. And it's like, well, but 
50% of our population has a penis, so why should a diagram of a penis not be family friendly? I don't understand. And we, and we all need to know what these things look like. So exactly. we've covered a little bit of okay to be uncomfortable, and we've covered that you don't really have to understand because yeah. you can seek for the information. But this next one, it's really interesting, mm -hmm. that it's okay to give mixed messages. Right. And I think, you know, this is always really um, an interesting thing for people to think about, and especially with sex. People really struggle with this. They say, no, just no. You can't have sex if you're talking to teenagers in some communities, it's you can't have premarital sex, you can't use birth control, or if you're married, you cannot look at porn, or, you know, there's so many just no. The problem is, is that, you know, we don't have control over what other people do. And so they're going to make their own decisions. But if you just frame it as a yes or no, then they're acting in a vacuum. And the only other alternative is defiance, is breaking the rules, which then leads us back to shame. Right. And I think we, we manage this, we as a culture manage this conversation better around, for instance, teens and alcohol. And we're pretty comfortable saying to, to teens, you know what, I don't want you to drink. You shouldn't drink, you shouldn't use drugs. But if you find yourself at a party. Call me. Call me. No questions asked. Never get into a car with somebody who's been using. And somehow we can make that work when it comes to alcohol and drugs. And maybe it's just that it's a conversation that's been going on for several decades now. Um, but with sex, we still have a hard time with that. And I think, but I think it's the same thing. I think it's, you know, I'd rather that you wait to have sex. But... Should you find yourself in a situation where you feel like it is the time, here's a condom. And I think it even goes further than that, right? Like, yeah. um, should you find yourself in the middle of sex and find that it doesn't feel right? Yes. That something, um, something about it makes your skin crawl or something and yes. you want to stop. Yes. Male or think, female, whomever you are. Exactly. Exactly. Here's what I want you to know about sex when you find yourself there. Yeah. And I think that brings us back to that discussion about pleasure earlier. If we teach kids that sex should feel good, then they will have more of a voice to say, you know what, this doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. This doesn't feel right. But we teach kids, especially girls, I think, end up being the recipients of this message more, that sex is just something you do. And there are lots of reasons you do it. And again, these are not formal lessons. These are more informal messages they pick up through media, through peers. Um, but then as a result, when they find themselves in situations that are not pleasurable, they say, well, maybe this is just the way it is, or maybe this is the way it's supposed to be or I can't back out now, or I'll be labeled a slut, a tease, a cock block, whatever, you know, the, the word is that they would choose. Right. You know, so they, it takes away their agency. Whereas if we say, you know what, sex should be pleasurable, it should feel good. And if it doesn't, then you can always say, you know what, we need to stop. Or and this isn't working for me. Or do this other thing instead. Megan, I think there's another layer here too, though, that we, we a few other, maybe 20 other layers. That we <laughs> just to be real about it, you know, uh -huh. um, for one, I'm just kind of filing away and we can come back to this, that we're really having a very um, binary conversation, boy, girl. Sure. So I just kind of want to file that away and come back to that. But the other piece that um, is really coming up for me right now is we need to help our youngsters know what pleasure feels like. Uh -huh. And that... I mean, help them discern the difference between something that feels good and something that doesn't. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, I mean, I think as a society, we don't do that well and we don't understand that well. But if we can teach our kids that, then it means that come marriage or long-term partnership or short-term partnership or any kind of sexual interaction, 
they will have more of a conversation. Yeah. Whereas I see so many clients who kind of finally get to me when they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s who say, this has been going on for so long. And I've been in pain or been ashamed of it for so long. So I look at talking to kids about sex as more of that preventative. Yeah, very much. I, I have so many clients also who come into my office with decades upon decades mm -hmm. of I've been dealing with this or I think I haven't been able to do this or whatever the thing is. Right. It has been their secret that they've been holding or something that maybe their partner knows about and they've been struggling with right. for many decades. We're not even talking years. Right. Exactly. And that people live in these uncomfortable, silent spaces for so long. And then, right. all right, so this is, <laughs> I'm going so many places, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm dancing around, but I think my listeners get that I do that. <laughs> well, and I think that that's, that's kind of the nature of sex, is that it is so all-encompassing, and it is so big. That it is so big. It, 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 it all leads together. It all it, comes together. And I kind of compare it to like a big you know, tangled up ball of yarn that you pull on one end and you're like, oh, I think I have it. I think I have it. And then it turns out, no, you don't. Now you have to pull on this other string to figure out something else that's happening. And it takes such a degree of patience and right. like regulation to kind of exactly. stay in that process. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, this leads us also into like some big conversations that are happening these days okay. that are maybe, oh, are they big conversations that are happening these days? Are they the more explicit or the implicit kind of conversations. I'm not really sure. But the conversations that at least are in my head around power, conversations yeah. that are happening around, um, uh, is it submission even that I'm thinking of? But it's like pieces about uh, control and dominion mm -hmm. um, and how that plays into sexual conversations. Because mm -hmm. I think culturally, this is something that we're, we're seeing bubbling up with like the Weinstein case and, and right. stuff like that. Right. Definitely. And, and I think that that's what you said is exactly on that, you know, we're really starting to have a real honest conversation amongst or across institutions, across fields, um, across pieces of our lives about who holds the power and how do they utilize that power? Yeah. How do they, what assumptions do they make about what that power gives them? And, and as somebody who has less power, are they able to really consent or is it, you know, because it may appear consensual, but it's really not consensual because the power differential is so great that it really never can be fully consensual. And that's something, you know, I talk about with clients is that there are going to be times where you're at an absolute, I call it a red light, like there, you're not in the mood for whatever reason. And of course, we're going to respect that. And there are times where you're absolutely, I'm interested, whether it's interested in flirting or interested in sex or a sexy encounter of some sort. But there's a lot of space in between those two where I could be interested, I might be, or maybe I'm interested in making out and interested in seeing where it goes. And having a little bit of flexibility to just be mindful of how am I feeling? Yeah. And might I be interested in a little flirtation and seeing where it goes? And then for the other partner to just be aware of, you know, there is some flexibility. Yeah. And maybe and that will grow into something and maybe it won't, but there will at least be maybe an opportunity for some communication and some connection to happen. Yeah. And I think this brings us to a really awesome part of this conversation, which is that every sexual encounter doesn't have to end or culminate in sex. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> right? That the pressure of that yeah. is often what kills the, the heat, 
of the moment, right? right? Exactly. That if, if we can just kind of hold that, that space of not knowing where this is going to go, or maybe it's just going to linger in this little seductive place for a little while. And then, you know, we move on to something else and we come back to this dance of seduction later. Right. And even what our definition of sex is, because in our culture, sex really typically means intercourse. Penis and vagina. Penis and vagina (laughs) intercourse. Exactly. And so, you know, I like to tell clients, sex starts from the moment you know it's going to happen or you suspect it's going to happen. Even if that's hours ahead of time. What is the it there? Because I mean, like, when I... everything. Right. It includes all sensual touch. It can include, even if that moment is hours ahead of time and you're at a party and you're, you know, a kid's birthday party and you're fully clothed and you're not even touching each other, but maybe you share a look. That that look. <laughs> is a sexual, sensual moment that can then continue through the day through words or looks or those quiet G-rated touches that you know have more meaning, but anyone looking won't necessarily know. Yes. And it includes everything, every touch. And so to really take that pressure off of penis and vagina, and again, we're talking in a very heteronormative way here, but that it really is anything. And it doesn't even have to culminate in orgasm. It can be just sensual touching. And I use that word just, but I don't mean to minimize that because that is so powerful and such a beautiful thing. And to expand our definition of that so it doesn't feel like it's, it has to be this thing. And if it's not this, then it's not successful. I totally am there with you, both in how I practice clinically with the couples and the individuals that I work with, taking that pressure off mm-hmm. and kind of re-educating a little bit about what sex is and also just how I live in my partnership. Yeah. Um, something that came to mind as we were just talking about this is that it also plays in, I think, a lot to sex education, that if sex is only intercourse then there's a lot of things that one can do that aren't sex. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, I've, and I've worked with teenagers who said, well, I'm still a virgin, but yeah, I've given blowjobs. And there was that one time I had anals. And, and, and I'm, you know, and as I relay these stories, all of the adults in the room look at each other and go, oh my God, but, that, but they're, they're still a virgin? Well, but how we define sex as penis and vagina, heteronormative intercourse, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you can still be a virgin and have all of these other sexual encounters. Totally. So I think, yeah. Can we make a hop? Because this conversation has been so heteronormative, has been so Mm -hmm. boy-girl. And I I just want to include some space in here for people who don't identify on this binary, right? Who, um, who are more non-binary, who may have a different sexual orientation, and that might be the secret. Mm-hmm. Or in this day and age, maybe it's not a secret, right? But it's still something that is, uh, it's still something that is othering. Yes. And I think that, that secretness, I've, in my own practice, I've seen, um, is often a generational or cultural issue. Yes. So there are some young people who are out from a very young age and it's very comfortable um, for themselves and their families and their communities. And then there's some people who aren't, who live in communities where that's not okay, where other is not okay. And then I see with older clients that um, it is less comfortable yeah. or it's been more of a journey or if it's been a later in life journey, that it is something that they really struggle with because there are so many internalized messages. And I think we're living in a really interesting time right now. I'm just going to use the word interesting to describe it. But (laughs) we're living in this time where we do have young people growing up with more ease and comfort around their sexuality, with their communities and their families holding them and nurturing them. And yet there are these overarching political agenda style kind of conversations that are also happening. Yes. Are creating a sense of... um, 
fear, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, are, are my rights to, to wed going to be taken right. away? If I identify as trans, are like people see me differently, right? right. There's, there's so many different parts of these conversations on a bigger political front that might be outside of our communities, but still affect mm-hmm. all, all of us, whether Definitely. you, no matter how you identify, these conversations affect everyone. Yes. And I think that we also have to remember that, so I live in Southern California and I, a lot of my, the people I surround myself with are liberal. Um, They tend to be in the therapy or educator professions. Um, They know me and they know how I feel about things that I feel pretty strongly. And, but I forget that I'm in a bubble. I'm in an acceptance bubble and that there are a lot of people out there who don't feel the same way. And there's a lot of people. And I think especially around the conversation around um, transgender individuals, I think for lesbian, gay, bi, queer, it's a little bit easier um, because I think the, their journey has been longer. So it's more part of the, cultural conversation, but they're still struggling in so many ways. But I think especially around transgender rights, there's a lot of people who just don't understand. And it goes against everything they know about themselves and their own sexuality and their own gender, that they just don't get it. And so I hear people even in my community saying, well, I don't agree. Or why would you do this? Or what is the point of this? And California just, uh, our governor just signed into law last week um, that all state documents have to have a non-binary option. I did see that. That was so exciting. It was so exciting and it was so amazing, but there was a lot of pushback from it. Yeah. And there were a lot of people that I heard from who said, I just don't understand. And you know, why are children going to make decisions like this? It goes back to people being uncomfortable. Right. Right. Exactly. And not realizing that it's okay to be. Right. And that it doesn't, okay, so it doesn't impact you and it doesn't impact your family. And okay. Yeah. But does that mean that it shouldn't be just because it makes you uncomfortable or it's something that doesn't apply to you? But I think and, that it is still such an ongoing conversation. So much. And, and I think another just piece to kind of like throw in here is I heard you say, why do children get to make these decisions? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important for us just to be aware of the fact that in many cases, these are not decisions. Right. Exactly. Right? They're exactly. not things that I'm saying, hey, I want to be different or I'm choosing to be this or I'm going to wear blue today or mm-hmm. today I want to put my hair in like a unicorn style ponytail on the top of my head. Like mm-hmm. these aren't decisions. And it goes beyond being a tomboy. And that's what I hear a lot of women say yeah. is, well, I was a tomboy. And I try to remind them that it, it, it's, not, it's not about being a tomboy. It's not, it's not about feeling comfortable as being a girl, but wanting to play baseball or wanting to play with the boys or wanting to do these other things. It's about an internal awareness that something doesn't fit. And I wonder what would happen (laughs) if we all gave ourselves permission to become aware of those internal compasses about what fits and what doesn't. Yeah. Right? Like maybe this binary scale doesn't work for any of us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It is just a social construct about what should be. And, but who gets to define that? Who has gotten to say that girls wear aprons and have to like to cook? And that boys have to do these other things. Because it, it shows up in other ways in our relationships when we say exactly. those things. I have had consultation calls even with clients where maybe the male partner calls and says, well, we chose to do things differently. My partner's back at work mm-hmm. and our whole relationship is confused because I'm the stay-at-home parent. Mm-hmm. 
right? So we're not even talking about quote unquote sex, but we're talking about sex roles and identification. And Mm -hmm. these things, they ripple forth in our lives. Mm -hmm. They they show up everywhere. And there's so much confusion around this stuff when we don't allow for for this permission to just be more fluid. And then even when we do, it shows up as confusion because society doesn't get it. Right. Right. Exactly. So in my own partnership, um, my husband also hyphenated his name when we got married. And that caused so much confusion for people. The, he had so many arguments with the DMV about why he was changing his name and the order that the name should go into because their system had set, been set up in such a way for the woman to change her name upon marriage. And but it, not for men. But not for men. It was so confusing. It was such a headache for him. Um, and and that's, just another, it, that's just another way of our, how our society and our ideas of what men and women should do, and I put that in the binary very clearly, and how it's systemic. It's our whole systems of being are set up because of those expectations. It's, this is like, it's mind blowing to me and it's not at the same time because I've been aware of these conversations, but that we're talking about it right now. Exactly. You know, and, and that's so much of, of this like struggle that we're feeling culturally and shifting in our lives right now comes back to this, like Mm -hmm. that we're just not comfortable talking about the sexy stuff. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think, and I think that as humans, we like things to be neat. We like things to be orderly. We like things to make sense. We like classifications and labels, but they don't really apply and they never really have. And, and I think going back to the question of gender, you know, people say, well, you're either a boy or you're a girl, you're man or woman. You either have a penis or you have a vagina. And they get really uncomfortable when you point out, but there's always been a lot of people who've fallen into that middle. Yeah. Because they've been born intersex or they have um, genetic, I, I don't know the appropriate term, genetic quirks, um, where, you know, things aren't lining up in that perfect classification system. And we've just always ignored them or forced them into a box. Right. And now there's enough of a voice that we're taking notice and the rest of society is having to like pay a little bit of attention and get a little bit uncomfortable with the stuff that they've just been putting in that box over there and forgetting about. Right. Right. Oh, Megan, this has been a really rich conversation, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to love it and have a lot of feedback. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> where, where can they find you? What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Um, well, the best way is probably via my website. Um, it's because of the way my days are set up, where I'm usually talking to people in appointments that can't be interrupted. Uh, phone is not a good way to reach me. So I normally recommend email as the first way to get a hold of me. Um, my website is www.megantoripain.com. Um, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Excellent. And um, I'm also happy to answer questions about sex or sexuality. Um, in addition to therapy and education, I offer consultations Um, which is really more just to answer those kind of one-on-one questions that aren't, don't perhaps need therapy, but I just have this question that I need an answer to from someone that I trust. Am I normal? Exactly. (laughs) Am I normal? Exactly. Or even do you have a book I could read about this topic? You know, because sometimes that that can be hard to find too. Um, You know, most... Most brick-and-mortar stores don't have a good selection of books on sex and sexuality, and it can be scary to just trust one on Amazon or an online retailer. So I make a point of trying to take a look at 
and keep my ear to the ground for good ones that are coming out so that I can refer people to. Excellent. Do you actually have a, a resource list or anything anywhere? Um, I have one for specifically for talking to kids um, that I don't have my website on my website, but I can get up there. Um, and other than that, I don't have anything just because I have so many books on my bookshelf. If yeah. It's a crazy it, it's list. Overwhelming. Yeah. But maybe at least that the one that you have, we could, yes. um, we can get a link to that also in the show notes for folks. Okay. Are- Yes, I think I will that would be that would be awesome, Megan. I know we just like ended and wrapped up, but then you and I got into another delicious conversation. <laughs> we weren't coming on air, and we had to come back. <laughs> so let's see if we can come back here for our listeners. We were okay. talking about what people actually bring into our offices, mm-hmm. right? And you went through this little descriptor of of kind of like the range of what you see. Do you want to go back there? Sure. It's, it's, um, there's a continuum that kind of starts with the vanilla on one side, which I kind of look at as erectile dysfunction, desire discrepancy, kind of the standard everyday things. And then it goes all the way into kinks or fetishes. And there's this thing that I just don't know how to feel about, how to incorporate, or I have to have this conversation with my partner about something I want to do, and how am I going to do that? And what are they going to think? And are they going to think I'm a horrible person or awful or, you know, gross? (sighs) And how it's, again, sitting with that discomfort of everything that sex therapy can encompass. And then there's this other side, right? Because we were talking about how in traditional couples therapy, Mm -hmm. therapists are often taught to not hold secrets. Mm -hmm. And yet so much of what people bring in to sex therapy are secrets. Right. These are things that people have been thinking about, worrying about, ashamed of for so long that there has to be a secret. And sometimes that's with the intention of telling their partners at some point, but sometimes it's just, I don't know if I ever can, or accepting that my partner will never accept this. And how do I come to terms with that? And what do I do with it? Because this is a part of who I am, even if it can't be incorporated into my partnership. And, and there's the place where this work becomes the, um, that internal compass, that identity-seeking space of understanding oneself. Right. Right? And that exactly. if, if we're holding those, those secrets in a shameful box, in a place where we're not able to incorporate them into our own identity, mm-hmm. right? What, what does that do for us as, as an individual? And how are we even able to begin to show up in a partnership in that capacity? Right, exactly. And that's really where that, that place of shame is, that people live with shame for decades because they're afraid of these fantasies and desires that they have. And what are their partners going to think? What would their partners think of them? Right. Back to, am I normal? My partner exactly. going to think I'm not. They're going to think I'm you know, crazy or messed up or something. Right, exactly. Or on the, on the flip side, when you get partners in who say, my partner told me this fantasy and I don't know what to do with it yeah. because it's not something that I want and I'm kind of having this visceral reaction to it and I don't know what to do about that. And so we also have to be able to sit with that discomfort and hold that Secret, I'm putting in quotes because maybe secret isn't the best term, but holds that space for them to come to terms with it. You know, I, I'm really loving the work of Terry Real lately. And one thing that he talks about, he reframes this a little bit from holding secrets to holding confidences. Yes. I like that word so much better. Yeah. Because yeah. a, a secret, again, goes back to a place of shame. We yeah. only keep shameful things secret. Whereas a confidence is private. And I think that is something that's really important to differentiate, that there can be privacy. And that is important in any partnership, that private thoughts, private desires don't need to be shared. 
that's not necessarily secret or shameful. That Isn't is just that interesting though, and something that like some education and holding is needed around still too, oh, that there definitely. can be confidences and privacy within intimate relationships. Yeah. Exactly. And I think especially, especially around fantasy, that becomes really uncomfortable for people about what does it mean if my partner is having this fantasy and not being able to separate that fantasy does not necessarily equal behavior and maybe not even a want. You can have a fantasy that you don't want to actually see fulfilled, but it's sort of something that you play around with. And, and I think that really scares and frightens people. And then it becomes, well, where is that line of privacy versus complete honesty? And I think that people need that privacy. We need the privacy to be able to hold on to these fantasies and then maybe contemplate, do, is this something I even want to bring out into the world. And I think this is also that that space that Esther Perel is talking about a lot in her work yes. lately, where she's talking about how when when we don't have those privacy places, when we don't have those those confidences that we hold, what we actually end up doing is kind of like suffocating desire. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of desire lives in our head. It lives in those fantasies. And sometimes sharing a fantasy can be part of the seduction and the excitement, but sometimes holding on to it is just as powerful or just as needed, especially if it's a fantasy that our partners might find threatening. And that's okay. It's okay to have a fantasy and to know it's my fantasy and it doesn't need to be out in the world. It doesn't need to be in our partnership. It doesn't jeopardize anything or anyone. It's just mine. It's my thought. I love this. And I love that sex therapy is also a place that people can just conceive of and think of that can be a safe place to bring these fantasies if you just need to hear that it's okay to have them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an amazing place. I consider myself so lucky to be here and to be able to be in this role for people and just hold, hold whatever it is they need to hold. I can help them with it. And I just love that. Yeah. I, I love it too. Thank you again so much for, for jumping back on and diving sure. in here. Not a problem. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Um, so Megan, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so grateful to have had this opportunity, time and conversation with you. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'd love to keep this conversation going with you in the Pobscast community on Facebook or drop me a line over at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. If you're interested in working with me, please do click on the link in our show notes. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidneystone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>